0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Julie Douglas.
0: Julie, what is your history with horror movies and dating, horror movies and relationships? Mm.
1: Hmm. It goes way back because I remember my brother and I staying up late and watching Jack ripper. And I'm like six, Mm -hmm. maybe. And uh, it made a huge impression on both of us. And I remember even though he was older, he was like, you got to walk me down the hall. You got to look behind (laughs) the shower curtain. And so I began to really have that feeling like something was out there lurking. But I got to say, in terms of dating, it wasn't like a, you know, a 50s drive in. I wasn't like, oh, let's go watch something. It wasn't like the beginning of the thriller video, which I was like, oh. It's scary out here.
0: <laughs> well, um, interestingly enough, I, uh, anytime my wife and I are trying to determine how long we've known each other, we have to look up the Saw movies on, an <laughs> uh, on Internet Movie Database. Yeah. Um, not because the, the Saw movies are particularly near and dear to our heart. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the first one was okay in some respects, but it's, you know, it's not something I, I, I cherish, but, we uh, shortly after we met each other, we went and saw the first Saw movie in the theater. So we know that if we can determine, for a while they were putting out one a year. So we knew that we could see which which Saw movie they were on, and that would tell us how long we'd known each other. Uh, but now we we have to do a little math. But we have to find that starting point uh, by answering the question: When did the first Saw movie come out?
1: Wow! So that just shows. I think it's very reflective of your deep history with horror movies <laughs> in that genre in general. Because my husband and I would probably look at the Coen Brothers movies and be yeah. like, okay, which one was the one that we saw together that denotes the beginning of the relationship? But you, yes, that vast history of the genre.
0: Well, even though I, you know, I, I certainly hold the Coen Brothers films far above most, uh, bits of horror that I've seen. But for some reason, a horror movie that I don't even particularly like all that much is the, uh, the signifier. But, uh, but you know, from an an early age, I remember being hit over the head with that trope, though. Of if you're going on a date, what do you do? You take the person to a movie, and and generally it needs to be a horror movie, uh, because you saw this, you see this in films, you see this in horror movies as well, uh, especially the the older ones that would come on, uh, you know, on TV mm-hmm. uh, on, in the middle of a of a Saturday. You'd see these old films which would show uh, people in the 1950s and 60s. Going to the drive-in, right? Going on dates and seeing a horror movie.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're right. This is something that is actually sort of woven into our cultural fabric. Mm -hmm. And it's a rite of passage in a way. And so I love that you guys, that you and your wife's first date was a horror flick. (laughs) Because we're going to talk about the ways in which it might influence our amorous feelings for others out there.
0: Yes, uh, and leading to the, the big question... Does this actually work as an aphrodisiac? Does the haunted house actually empty into the bedroom, uh, et cetera? <laughs> so, uh, so we're going to back up just a little bit and and talk about the effects of fear on the body, uh, on the mind. Because mm-hmm. at a very basic level, uh, this should come as no surprise to anyone. We did not evolve to watch horror movies. Horror what? Mo- <laughs> We didn't. Uh, we uh, we evolved to deal with frightening and or dangerous stimuli, mm-hmm. but the horror movie, in many cases, stands as, a, as an example of supernormal stimuli, and, and it's also a simulation. So we, we have this unreal experience with fear mm-hmm. that plays on our minds and on our bodies in the same way that actual uh, lethal threats do.
1: Right. So you have a tiger, which is an actual threat. And Mm -hmm. at one point when humans were part of the food chain would have been a real problem. Right. Right. And we have bodies that can respond to that. On the other hand, we have the paper tigers of our mind, which come to life in the form of movies. And sometimes the mind is like, hey, I can't distinguish between the two. So we should talk about what's happening in the mind. And we'll also get to who this might be affecting the most.
0: Alright, so let's just let's just run through what happens. You're in the you're in the movie in the right. movie theater. You're and, and therefore you are in the movie in a sense. You're immersing yourself in the experience. You're you're watching these fearful sights, you're hearing fearful things. Um maybe you're smelling something fearful, depends on what kind of uh gimmick the uh the, uh, the theater is throwing at you, but for the most part, we're talking about your ears and your eyes. So horror is running into your ears and your eyes to an almond-shaped clump of neurons called the amygdala. Uh, this is located front and center in the brain, and it's vital to instantaneous emotional processing, especially, surprisingly enough, love and pleasure uh so we've uh we've conducted in the past experiments on rats that have shown that damaging the amygdala interferes with their capacity to feel fear as well mm-hmm. and this suggests an overlap between these seemingly opposite emotions of pleasure and fright uh, and we've touched on this before yeah. um, and, and and we see this kind of dual purposing a lot because because ultimately uh, w- with the brain uh you know some ca- some cases you can point to a certain region of the brain and say well, this is this lines up with this but in many cases we see double duty you see that that uh, the that, that different areas are involved in the processing of different uh, different feelings etc so uh it shouldn't come as any surprise that we see um, we see love and pleasure, we see fear and terror uh, wound up in the same mechanisms.
1: Yeah, we talked before about how the amygdala processes pain, emotional pain and physical pain,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that the, the two are just so bound up together. So again, there's there's no big surprise here that there's an overlap in pain and pleasure as well. So if you think about Freddie emerging from behind the door or that chainsaw getting closer and closer to your neck, mm-hmm. you think about your amygdala getting all juiced up unleashing a brain embody energizing cocktail of hormones. Energizing, remember that, you know? And while all this is happening, you also have your prefrontal cortex getting in on the game and saying, it's okay. It is just a movie. And the result of that is a just a kind of wave of pleasure. Because you know that you're in this domain where you're not actually going to get hurt and yet you're you have all those energizing Hormones and chemicals flowing through you.
0: Yeah, all within about three seconds, uh, your amygdala is uh, is unleashing this uh, this hormone cocktail uh it's prompting uh, an already uh, already busy adrenal glands to turn out uh, cortisol the stress hormone and high levels of cortisol uh can't impede insulin causing a rise in blood sugar a little extra fuel if case you need to uh punch something in the face or run away into right. the hills right. uh you're you're going you know breathing faster you're taking in more oxygen that way your heart is racing to get that oxygen to your muscles uh your your appetite stalls uh because uh, you know the, the energy your body would use for digestion is diverted towards getting away from the mass maniac, uh in your mind, if not in real life, you're you're potentially starting to sweat, pupils are dilating, and the car the cortisol has saturated your bloodstream at this point and feeds back into the amygdala to boost the perception of danger. Uh so in this way you're you know, reinforcing memory for the of the initial fright. So the so you may end up actually feeling a little jumpy uh afterwards. but anyway, yeah. all of this is hitting within three seconds, which which really makes you look at the horror movie or any kind of artificial scare in, in a way it's it's kind of like a drug it's this artificial stimuli mm-hmm. that we take in and it and it causes these uh, these physical responses
1: yeah and one of the more counterintuitive findings in, in the science of fear is that the stronger the negative emotions so we're talking about like anxiety and worry and fear um the more the person will enjoy that movie mm-hmm. that bit of horror in front of them And that's where you see that that distress and delight really are interconnected because it is intrinsically a a cathartic moment for the person.
0: Indeed. And uh, another big uh, thing to point out here is that... um Within five seconds of, uh, of of bringing in this fearful stimuli, your nerve cells start to release endorphins to combat the the injuries that you <laughs> <have> probably sustained <laughs> from the you know, the axe wielding maniac on the screen. Yeah, and uh, so your brain is also releasing dopamine, uh, the neurotransmitter uh, best known for you know giving you that feel good rush, uh, and also a, uh, some a, a property a neurotransmitter that we bring up a lot on, on the podcast uh, because it's one of those. Uh, those, those key substances that uh, plays a role in so many different uh, emotional responses to the world
1: yeah and that reminds me too you have mirror neurons in on the game as oh, well yes. and we've talked about that before the the mirror neurons that are essentially aping what they see in front of us in our brains so I always think about this with a clockwork orange that the moment in which his eyes are being peeled back. Mm-hmm. I will instinctively, you know, cover my eye and try to prevent it because it feels like it's happening to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, even if it's a, a bad horror movie with poorly defined characters, we can't help but invest a little of ourselves in that character. Mm-hmm. And then all the more so if they actually bothered to, uh, to, to, to develop the character and or have somebody, you know, competent play that character and bring them to life on the screen. And, uh, and the, and the eye thing is interesting too to note because when you see a film that just has injuries that consists of say arms getting chopped off and heads mm-hmm. getting chopped off, I mean that kind of gore can can certainly have an effect, but so often it's those little moments that make the most sense uh, to us and touch us the most the character uh, uh, scraping their their hand or, or or you know something jabs into their side or they mm-hmm. step on some glass, those little injuries that are far more relatable because for the most part, you and I cannot relate. To an individual getting their arm chopped off or their head chopped off, it's uh, you know it's it's a real world injury, but it's not something that we can say it's not necessarily wince worthy. But it's those little injuries that we can relate to. And, those, and when, the more we relate to what's going on on the screen, yeah. the more we can immerse ourselves in what's happening.
1: Yeah, that's why the idea of something like, say, a needle going into your eye is so horrific. Because mm-hmm. all of us have probably, at one point or another, had a needle pierce our skin. So we are familiar with that. But yeah, then you think or about even poked in
0: the eye. So, like, the, yes. the immediate danger to the eye is not something that's beyond the scope.
1: Yeah, and you pair that with the vulnerability of the eye. And it just becomes, like, this terrible thing that yeah. you can't even imagine. But you can't imagine. So,
0: there you go. That's our next um, science on the web. We'll just deal with one that yeah. only has clips from horror movies in which injuries are done to eyes.
1: I know. If you guys thought that earwax footage of that what looked like to be like a sticky croissant being pulled out mm-hmm. of an ear was terrible, then you know, you, you just imagine this next video.
0: Who is the uh, the really artsy filmmaker who did the scene with the razor blade in the eye? That was was.
1: Oh, I don't know. But did you see? I just. <laughs> just the,
0: so just to summarize again. You can think of the horror movie experience or even the, the haunted attraction experience as a drug. So bear that in mind when we're talking about um, people on a date partaking of the horror movie. If you're uh, one person asking another person out on a date to a horror movie, you're basically saying, hey, do this drug with me. This drug that will have this this physical, uh, emotional effect on me and you.
1: Right. And, and we'll both experience this together. There'll be this communal aspect and we'll both survive it together. Yeah it yeah, will come out on the other
0: end. Maybe. And if you frame it that way when you ask somebody on a date, they then I don't know, it depends on the individual. They might be more inclined to say yes, but they might be more inclined to say no and never speak to you again. But that is what the proposition actually is when someone says, "Hey, um I know you're in my uh, my physics class and we haven't uh, really talked, but why don't you go watch the new Friday the 13th movie with me?"
1: Let's metaphorically survive this together. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. I might, I might go. <laughs> All right, so who might be watching these kinds of movies the most? Well, we've talked about the type T personality before. We're talking about the neophiliacs who crave new experiences. They get more of a jolt, and they release more dopamine. So it would follow that perhaps a type T personality would be more amenable to getting the pants scared off of them.
0: Yeah, someone who just is... Who just goes into the, the theater and says, just push my boundaries, push my buttons. You know, they're not, they're not worried about uh, any of their triggers being uh, pulled no. on a particular movie. If anything, they want their triggers pulled. Uh, they want all the triggers possible yeah. to be pulled. Yeah,
1: they were like, I just jumped off a plane today, bring it on. Yeah. What you got?
0: And it's, it's often hard to relate to people like that when it comes to, uh, to movies, to to fiction, written fiction even, because they you, they seem to have at times drastically different expectations of the subject matter, you know? But anyway, that's a, another digression.
1: For, for another time, I think. Um, now, who else might be juiced up by this? Teens and 20-somethings.
0: Which flows in nicely with the, again, the trope of the teenagers going to the drive-in theater and watching something, uh, scary and winding up arm in arm and lip and lip. at least
1: lip and lip i like that um research fear research expert uh edward campbell says that older people have stimulation fatigue like for instance you have these these real horrors of life scaring you there are things that are actual real threats Mm -hmm. Uh, when you get older like you know there's looming death that's always unpleasant also
0: you're just more aware of Of what's going on in the world. I mean, like, I feel like I I see a trailer for a film, especially a horror film that has to do with home invasion. Yeah. It's like, I'm not going to see that. If I want to get frightened about the possibility of home invasion, you know, I'll just sit in my house and listen to the news or something. That's That doesn't take me out of my own experience. I know
1: my brother keeps saying, you gotta watch Cabin in the Woods. You gotta watch The Strangers. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want to because I like to go to the mountains in a cabin a lot and I Mm -hmm. don't want to now freight my experience there with these paper tigers. Oh,
0: well, Cabin in the Woods, you should maybe see. (sighs) Just know that there's a lot more going on than than meets the, the eye. It's not just a Cabin in the Woods film. It really plays with that trope a lot and goes into, and ultimately goes into a more fantastic area.
1: All right, well, I, both of you have really great judgment when it comes to, to media, so I'm obviously going to have to see this now. Although you promise this will not ruin my experience in the mountains.
0: Unless you're going to a really weird <laughs> mountain, I think you'll be fine.
1: Okay. All right, so anyway, it would, it would make sense that older people are like, you know what, I, I don't need this necessarily. I don't find it as entertaining as I used to because, you know, when I was a, a young buck of mm-hmm. 16, I was more likely to look for really intense experiences.
0: Yeah, I mean just physically, you get older and you're maybe not up for the adrenaline pumping uh, uh roller coaster ride of a of a horror film. It's just you just don't want to feel it in your body. Yeah. Um and uh and i'm not I'm not quite there yet but i've 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 certainly heard people make that argument they say, "Oh I just can't do it. it just makes my heart race I, I just don't want to go through it and and I can understand yeah. that especially again when you think of the horror movie the is the the artificial fear experience as a full body event
1: yeah, it's funny um I think I've mentioned this before, but before the birth of my daughter, I could watch anything and it really wasn't that difficult for me to watch mm-hmm. um you know, because I, I could very much say, "Ah, oh, yeah, this is the willing suspension of disbelief. It's not real," so on and so forth. But after her, I had her. I was everything was sort of like, "Ugh, this is difficult to watch." Yeah, uh, including horror movies. So I've come out of that a bit, but well, it's not the same anymore.
0: And it's also not the same for the people who who make it, obviously. Either I, I remember reading an interview with Clive Barker where he was talking about uh, looking back at some of his younger writings and. And about how, you know, now as, a, as an older man who's who, who's known people who has, di- who has died, you know, death has become more a part of his reality. Mm-hmm. And therefore, looking back on his view of death in his earlier horror films, he says, you know, sometimes it's harder to relate to that. It just seemed it, it is a different person.
1: Indeed. All right. So it's not just me out there um, having a different perspective on this. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to talk about the thematic power of these movies. All right, we are back, and uh, you know all that snack talk reminded me that we are actually going to talk about products that ah, we yes. eat during scary movies. But before we do that, let's talk about the thematic power of scary
0: movies. Yeah, because that's another huge thing to think about, because as always, um, with humans, there's this sort of animal level, there's the I'm seeing something scary, and then I'm, I'm bodily responding to it, but of course, horror movies have a lot of baggage with them as well like even yeah. a bad horror movie is is generally coming to you on the backbones of long standing tropes long standing folktales long standing cultural fears i mean it's a it's a complex there's a complex undercurrent there even if the uh, the director or actors or whoever responsible for this piece don't really have a clue what they're doing
1: yeah i feel like um i feel like writers and directors are tapping into these very ancient stories mm-hmm. that we have been telling each other as cautionary tales so you begin to see obviously the tropes pop up again and again
0: yeah it's one of the reasons why i probably enjoy bad horror movies and bad genre films as much, if not more than, than good ones, because you do see these accidents of genius. They'll be a bad film and like somehow they'll, they'll have like a perfect scene and, or, or the monster will, will, will somehow connect on a, on a level that is just, uh, out of keeping with the rest of the film, because they'll, they'll, they'll accidentally at times get it right. Um, they'll, they'll tap into these, these, at times, primal feelings.
1: Now, I should also say that um, when we talk about this, we're talking about a very sort of hetero norm situation going on here that horror movies appeal to. So let's say, for instance, that you're watching a movie and all the guys in it generally are cads, right? There's no sort of knight in shining armor. Mm-hmm. There is this idea, according to the site, uh, Killer Film, that... That might put your male date attendee in a really good light. So, for instance, you could be watching all of this terrible uh, sort of things unfold in front of you, and you might have this guy next to you who just took $20 out of your wallet, but you don't have to worry about him hopefully gutting you like a fish later.
0: Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, I was, we were looking at an article, How Watching Horror Movies on Dates Can Help You Score, by Serena Whitney at Killer Film, and, uh, and she does bring up a number of interesting points, again, in a very heteronormal, uh, sense here. But, but yeah, you're watching a horror film, all of the men are horrible, even the ones that aren't bearing machetes, and then, Oftentimes, there is at least this misguided attempt to have a strong female because you have that you have that lone survivor, that one female that makes it to the end of the film. Mm-hmm. And granted, it, the, the character development is generally not going to be there. It's not going to it's not going to be the the kind of character that uh, that feminist essays are written on uh, written about for years and years and years. But there's an idea of, of female strength and male lacking there.
1: Yeah, I was thinking even in the the scream films, or at least the first one mm-hmm. the the male that is supposed to be the one who is sensitive and perhaps the hero turns out to be actually the perp yeah yeah so you know good you can find examples of these all day long
0: yeah do okay. some of your more interesting films uh are aware of these tropes and then begin to play with them on some level or another so uh so yeah
1: yeah all right um then you also get this kind of like symbolism that that's that's couched in there. So if you look at a movie like Predator or even the Alien franchise, mm-hmm. what do you see? You see these creatures who have, uh, there's no sensitive way to say this. They have these genitalia-like looking creatures mm-hmm. that evoke the, the idea of vagina dentata. Mm -hmm. Vagina dentata, I feel like we have probably mentioned here a couple of times, is the idea that a vagina might have teeth and attack you. And it's this very sort of grotesque rendering of the female body, and it taps into this fear of females and this rendering of females as monsters, as unholy and evil. And so it's interesting that in horror movies... Uh, you'll see some of this embedded.
0: Yeah, yeah, the monstrous feminine plays a, a huge role in in more more horror films than we could we could count. More horror properties and more horror tales. Um. So yeah, when you're when you're going into a film, you're encountering the monstrous. The monstrous always has some level of symbolic par- uh, power, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're in, you're involving the animal and the hybrid coming together, and that ends up having some sort of symbolic meaning that you end up deciphering on on some level or another. And then when you throw in all of this, uh, you know, yonic or fa- or phallic symbolism, then suddenly there's there's gender politics, there's sexual issues at play. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, oftentimes just going on completely under the surface of the film, and, and, and maybe the filmmakers themselves were not even aware of the symbols they were playing with.
1: Which I feel like plays into this idea of, of hey, hussy watching, you know that, that you're a hussy, <laughs> so why don't you just, you know, submit to it? Uh, I mean, obviously they're not really coming out and saying it, but there are those undertones there. Um, which then are compounded by the fact that most scary movies have a ton of actual sex going on.
0: Yeah, it's generally a great place to throw in your gratuitous nudity. And uh, and really, I mean, I remember as far as like seeing nudity on film, like all the earliest examples of it, I feel like, were in horror films. Um, or even like, not even quite nudity, but just semi-nude bodies. Mm-hmm. It would be like that scene in Alien with the underwear. So th- that that in and of itself is kind of a... A conflicting area where you end up having your your early ideas about sexuality are partially uh, molded by films that are also full of bloodshed and problematic uh, uh, displays of sexuality and or gender and uh, along with with poor character development. But at the very least, there's a very good possibility that when you go into see a horror film, there's also going to be a little bit of skin.
1: Yeah, and I think that's riding on the coattails of what we talked about before, which is a certain amount of vulnerability Wrapped up in nudity, which we've talked about before. Um, I'm even thinking about this. Have you ever seen the 1970s French film called *The Beast*?
0: No, but I've I've always wanted to because uh, yeah. the uh, the VHS cover always calls out to me at, when I go to Videodrome, the uh, of course mecca of uh, of uh, of VHS and DVD rental here in uh, in Atlanta, because you see that bestial hand reaching after a woman's bottom. Or is it just her flesh? I can't remember. I can't
1: remember the cover art for it. But what I came away from that is that, you know, there's this beast, you know, stalking this woman in in the forest. And she's Mm -hmm. naked a lot of the time. And so it really comes down to sort of the rudimentary brass tacks of horror. You've got your vulnerability. You've got this creature that's after you. And you're in the woods. You're in unfamiliar territory being stalked.
0: Now I also want to throw in that uh, that the Sigmund Freud of course suggested that horror was appealing because it traffics in thoughts and feelings that have been repressed by the ego but which seem vaguely familiar. So again, all of these uh, symbolic ideas are are embedded in the meat of the horror even if uh, even if the the creators weren't aware of it. And just and when you play with the monster, when you're playing with the with, with images of the monstrous, you end up playing with weird uh, uh, alignments of these symbols. Um, I want to read uh, just a quick uh, passage here. I want to read a quick passage here from Monster Culture by uh, Jeffrey Jerome Cohen. It's uh, one of the essays in Speaking of Monsters, uh, which uh, is a collection of wonderful essays about uh, monsters in film, monsters in fiction, monsters in culture in general and, and what they mean. Uh, I recommend checking that book out if this is at all your thing. But anyway, uh, Cohen says, the monster is continually linked to forbidden practices in order to normalize and to enforce. The monster also attracts. The same creatures who terrify and interdit can evoke potent escapist fantasies. The linking of monstrosity with the forbidden makes the monster all the more appealing as a temporary egress from constraint. The simultaneous repulsion and attraction at the core of the monster's composition accounts greatly for its continued cultural popularity, for the fact that the monster seldom can be contained in a simple binary dialectic. We distrust and loathe the monster at the same time we envy its freedom and perhaps its sublime despair. The habitations of monsters are more than dark regions of uncertain danger. They are also realms of happy fantasy, horizons of liberation. Their monsters serve as secondary bodies through which the possibilities of other genders, other sexual practices, and other social customs can be explored.
1: And you know, uh, right before we started the podcast, we were talking about literary criticism and we were talking about Jacques Lacan and Derrida who both took on language as saying it is a coda. Mm-hmm. for for the rules of how we behave in society or the ideas that we have. And it's heavily patriarchal. So it's interesting to think about that um, the way that we are forming the symbols, which is part of language, to inform the actual story unfolding before us. Indeed. Alright. So we have this idea that we have these really powerful themes and we have these mirror neurons working in our brains. We're 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 responding to this chemical cocktail inside of us, and perhaps we inch closer together in a symbolic act of defending ourselves from the terror before us on the screen. Is there any evidence that watching scary movies can increase acts of humping?
0: (laughs) Well, that's, that's the big question, right? And fortunately, we do have a pretty key study that sheds some light on this, it doesn't necessarily answer all the questions, but it it continues to stand as a as a pivotal study into this uh, this question uh, and uh, in this we're talking about the misattribution of arousal. Which is the process whereby people make a mistake in assuming what is causing them to feel aroused. And it all comes down to this, uh, this article, Heightened Sexual Attraction Under Conditions of High Anxiety. And this is a 1974 study by psychologist Donald Dutton and author Aaron. Um, and it all has to do with, in what is, in, in a sense, kind of a, a physical manifestation of a horror movie. A uh, a dangly uh, bridge, suspension yeah. bridge, yeah,
1: and uh, it's sometimes known as the Capilano Suspension Bridge Experiment because they had eighty five males between the ages of eighteen and thirty five, who would walk across one of two bridges over the Capilano River in Vancouver, Canada, and afterwards they were interviewed. Yeah, but some, it's it's a little bit more layered than that.
0: Yeah, The so you have the two bridges. One is the is definitely the scary bridge, the horror movie bridge, five foot wide, four hundred and fifty long, foot long bridge, construction of wooden boards attached to wire cables. Perhaps you've walked on one of these before, but oh,
1: I can't stand when they sway and they wobble.
0: Yeah, marvel. and then it's it's hard enough when you're alone, but then inevitably there's going to be some. uh some jerkwad's gonna come uh, come on the, under the bridge right behind yeah. you and start jumping around and some Type T. Yeah, and then and then you're starting to freak out and then you end know, up crawling across the rest of it. I mean, basically the rope bridge in the the second Indiana Jones movie. You know, that's that's the experience. Okay, so. Some people use that bridge. Other people, though, that were going across the control bridge, which was a solid wood bridge that was a little further upriver, and this was constructed of heavy cedar, it's not going anywhere, nobody's jumping on this thing to make it sway around, uh, it's solid. So they both cross, both groups cross the bridges, and at the other end of the bridge they're interviewed uh, by a female conducting a survey, giving them all these, these questions they have to answer. The guys who'd crossed the scary bridge filled out their questionnaires with stronger sexual imagery than the men who'd crossed the safe bridge.
1: Now, this is where it gets very interesting. Both groups were given a number where they could reach the female assistant in case they required any clarification (laughs) on the surveys that they took, which would obviously give them a chance to follow up with her, right? The guys on the suspension bridge were five times as likely to call her the next day. So what's the idea here? I mean, what's going on?
0: Well, the idea is that your body is, is is aroused by the tear. You know, we're ta- talking about just basic physical arousal. Again, you know, think back to what we were talking about with your 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 heart is racing, you're your, your breathing faster, and you have all this dopamine rushing through through your system. You're feeling all of that, and then you're encountering this member of the opposite sex, and and you end up misattributing the cause of that arousal mm-hmm. to the woman instead of the scary bridge. Uh, and, and this is, of course, all... Uh, well, and of course all of this has to do as well, supposedly with the, with the chemical dopamine, which is gushing out when you feel that first rush of attraction or terror. Again, it comes back to the, the dual nature, uh, and the, in the shared machinery for these positive and negative emotions.
1: Yeah, cause it's funny, even though there is an uptick in dopamine, it's not like a, a gushing uptick, there is the feeling that it's gushing and you're gushing and you feel emboldened by this. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that the men were more likely to, to call because they're looking at this experience and thinking about it. Um, now there was a, another, I wouldn't say it was an experiment because it was on ABC's Catalyst program. Mm-hmm. There was an episode called The Science of Dating, How to Catch a Mate, in which the suspension bridge experiment was reversed. They had two groups of women who were tested to see if the same thing would happen. So the reporter on this, Dr. Paul Willis, recruited six women to ride what he called the terrifying new Superman roller coaster. Okay. And then another six to go on Marvin the Martian's rocket, which Marvin the Martian is like a kiddie ride. There's nothing thrilly, thrilling or scary about
0: it. It sounds pretty fun. I would probably prefer the prefer that one.
1: It does have sort of an adorable quality to it. I think I would ride both, actually. So what happened next is that Willis hits on all the women on camera. So obviously there's some amusing stuff going on there. Now, five of the six women who rode the roller coaster were up for a drink after filming. Good for you, Dr. Willis. While only two of the Marvin the Martian women accepted his invitation. Moreover, when they filled out a survey, they used... Um, language, the women on the roller coaster, that was much more sexually charged than hmm. Marvin the Martian.
0: Now, that's not to say that there are not some potential holes in this article. It's been brought up uh, by critics uh, over the years uh, that uh, that the, the, some of this doesn't hold up as well when you reverse the genders, when mm-hmm. you start trying to replicate uh, the exact results. Uh, uh, in particular, uh, we were looking at an article titled, uh, Attraction at First Sight, what Dayton and Aaron really demonstrated almost 40 years ago, a 2012 article by uh, Katarzana Suzuka. And uh, she pointed out that some of the findings that Dunn and Arid um, uh, created in subsequent experiments uh, could not be replicated by both a 1979 study by Kendrick, Kaldini, and Linder, Mm and a 1983 study by Riordan and Tatishi.
1: That's right. And so that's when when we talk about studies and we talk about experiments, um, it's always helpful to know the context of it and to know whether or not the data could be duplicated. And so, in this sense, it really does kind of cast a little bit of doubt over what was going on here. Also, you have to wonder about the person um, who was participating. Was that person a neophiliac, a type T personality, who was open to more experiences? Would that person be more apt to try to pursue some sort of relationship or dating opening?
0: Yeah, I mean, you could even get into cultural differences. That first study was, uh, was, was Canadian, so... Does that end up playing a role in subsequent studies that are not uh, that don't that don't involve Canadians? Are there cultural differences that, that that play a role? And it also, in in terms of applying that study to this uh, people on a date at a movie theater scenario, mm-hmm. um, you have the added complexity of the the individuals on the date are going to be stimulated and aroused by what they're watching, but they're also potentially going to be stimulated by each other. I mean they're they're on a date. So they're they're thinking about this other person. They're looking at that other person. They're conceivably uh feeling some level of physical arousal just by being in their company. So you're having these two competing uh, uh sets of stimuli. Which, well, maybe not competing, but complementary.
1: Which is really interesting when you stop to consider one study that had to do with products kind of uh hitching a ride on those feelings.
0: Oh yes, this one's great because what do you do when you're at the movie theater? You're seeing this horror movie, and you don't have this uh, other person to uh, to jump into the arms of, right?
1: You cling to whatever you're drinking or you're eating yes. as a source of comfort.
0: Yeah, and and you go for the brand, right? You don't go for yeah. twi- you don't go for Red Vine. You go for Twizzlers. <laughs> you go for the you go for the good stuff, the strong yeah. stuff, the stuff you care about, the brand you can trust for all plastic candies
1: yeah you, you don't go for it was it hydroxy versus oreos yeah <laughs> that, that one always troubled me just the name
0: yeah hydrox sounds like the version of oreos that walter white cooks up in his lab uh, beneath the chicken plant right Yeah,
1: never <laughs> eat anything that walter white makes that's just a rule in life there's a 2004 study in the journal of consumer research that looks at this idea that that when you don't have person-to-person support when you're Experiencing something that's scary, that you will replace that person um, with something else, like a actual physical object. So, they had a couple of studies, but in one, they had one in which uh, participants were asked to drink the juice or this kind of juice during a movie, and they were asked to wait or given a choice to drink at leisure. Now, their choices were horror, action, or a documentary. And the study results showed that the most increase in emotional attachment to the juice in participants who viewed the horror movie and who were allowed to drink at leisure or asked to wait until the end of the movie. So, again, we see some sort of emotional connection to that, which I have to say, I I don't know if you've ever done this when you've watched something that, uh, you know, a movie that was scary or just ramped up your sense of anticipation. Um, and you just kept going for the popcorn over and over Mm -hmm. again, because as we've talked about before, food is a source of comfort.
0: Yeah. And then when you're the popcorn, of course, you're, you're, you're eating it and it's, you're getting the salty, the sweet, the fat. I mean, it's, it's, it's in itself kind of a, a super normal stimuli as well. But, but yeah, I've certainly had that experience where you're watching the film and you just can't stop eating the popcorn.
1: Now, uh, this study was conducted because there's this idea that uh, you could have negative associations with brands and then you would turn away from them. At least this is what a lot of industries like Coke and, and other um, manufacturers of snack food Thought And so this experiment was interesting because it kind of turns that paradigm on its head. And if you're interested in learning more about it, uh, the study is called The Impact of Fear on Emotional Brand Attachment. It was published in the June 2014 edition of Journal of Consumer Research.
0: I feel like again, I can definitely relate to, to that because just Monday evening, I watched the 1979 horror film Tourist Trap. And for you film junkies, it uh, starred Chuck Connors, you know the the Rifleman from the old uh, TV shows, uh-huh. uh, as this kind of like psychic. Hillbilly, mannequin obsessed It it was kind of a it was a Did you
1: say mannequin obsessed? Oh yeah.
0: It's it has creepy mannequins in it and psychic abilities and uh and and fear of of rural folk and old versus young. Is this
1: true detective?
0: No, it's it's not so elegantly crafted. It's it's not a good movie. But uh but there is but it has some flip scenes that are legitimately creepy. And it has a scene where there's a Dr Pepper machine in the background while mm-hmm. our lone survivor girl tries to figure out what she's going to do, and it's just you know she's terrified and she's standing around, and there's the Dr Pepper logo. And at the time, I was just kind of like, oh, what's a, that's kind of weird. Yeah. The Dr Pepper machine's there. I, I wonder what they thought about it. If they, if anyone in the corporate level ever knew that their logo showed up in this film. But even, even still, thinking back on it. Uh, the, the other evening, I started thinking about Dr. Pepper. I started thinking about how it tastes. And even though I haven't, haven't consumed a Dr. Pepper in years and years and years, I did kind of want one in that moment.
1: Mm, do you know what goes with it really well? What's that? Cheetos. Oh. I kid you not. My 16 yeah. year old self will tell you that, that that's a beautiful flavor combination.
0: Okay. Well, well, I'll have to keep that in mind for, for next time for sure.
1: Okay. We talk about these things and then often we try to find, Examples in nature. And yeah. lo and behold, we did find an example of perhaps the scary movie effect with Australian birds.
0: Yes, particularly we're talking about, uh, the splendid fairy wrens, which sounds pretty, uh, fantastic, Doesn't but, it? but this is an actual thing. Uh, particularly the male splendid fairy wrens, uh, are, are a sexually promiscuous small bird and they are known to kind of piggyback onto the calls of predatory birds, such as butcher birds. So the butcher bird lets out its predatory cry. And, uh, and any, uh, any potential prey in the area are instantly gonna go, ooh, you know, I, I, that's, that's a bad sign. That's the sound of something that could potentially kill me. That is a scary bird call. What does the, the male, uh, wren do? He tacks on his own little, uh, uh, love cry onto the end of the predator's cry.
1: Yeah, and it, in fact, he does it so quickly that it is sometimes considered a duet. At least vocally, it sounds like that. Mm-hmm. And this is called vocal hitchhiking. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I love the fact that this predator bird is called a butcher bird and i can't help but think of like bill the butcher with his glorious mustache so so that's what i think of flying around out there
0: well it fits perfectly right there's a butcher there's a horrible killer in our midst Mm -hmm. and it's calling out to us it's shrieking and then here is the the male uh, of this species the
1: splendid fairy wren the
0: fairy wren saying hey ladies
1: Hey ladies, what's going on? Yeah. And it is a specifically it's called a type 2 call that the splendid fairy wren makes, which is specifically a mating call and that's really important. Um and they they were out in the field. They did tons of painstaking research on this to figure this out. So, essentially what they're doing it, it, at the very basis here is trying to get the female's attention and that is much easier done if it is preceded by this terrifying predator out there
0: indeed it's almost sending that message uh life is horrible life is full of dangers you could die don't wouldn't you like to have a little comfort wouldn't you like to have a chance uh, maybe even to fulfill your genetic mission on this planet before you wind up in the belly of a butcher bird
1: that's right there's no time like the present to get it on ladies <laughs> i think that's what they're saying now lest you think that these male birds are competing for a darwin award out there in nature um, it turns out that the singing after a predator call may actually be really safe. Uh, male fairy wrens know where the predator is located, first of all, and he also knows that the predator isn't actively hunting at that moment, but is instead singing its heart out as if it were in the shower.
0: Oh, man, see, this makes me think of a perfect pitch for, uh, for a horror movie. You have your basic slasher scenario, right? Okay. He's a slasher killer, and he you know he pops up, uh, you know, periodically at some, you know, late camp or, you know, similar haunts. Right. But then you also have uh, males, uh, male humans that are essentially uh, like our, our splendid fairy wren who realize hey if they they want to have a shot at the ladies they had best go hang out in regions where the slasher killer uh happens to uh, to frequent i don't know
1: I don't know. I mean, that's, that's that's it's an idea here.
0: Yeah, it would be a nice reveal because again, we love the horror movies where all the men are horrible. So there would be that reveal where you realize the the ma- the male characters who seem like they're trying to help are female. They're basically just looking to score and they're they've they've they're using the presence of the flasher killer to their advantage. Cads, yeah, all
1: of you. All right, um, this is the, the single case that they've found so far in nature, but uh, the researchers, um, and this is headed up by Emma Greig. She's a Ph.D. and she's one of the first authors of the study. They suspect that there are more cases like this out in nature. They just have to find them. And if you're interested, the study is called Danger May Enhance Communication. Predator Calls Alert Females to Male Displays.
0: All right, so there you have it. Now, based on everything we've we've told you here, I feel like this would be a good time for us to give you some some recommendations if you're looking for a um, manipulative dating movie experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want something you want to watch some horror that would uh, perhaps uh, have some romantic results, though we by no means uh, guarantee results.
1: Yeah, if you want to try to scare the pants literally <laughs> off of your date, uh, no matter what their gender, Okay, my picks. Uh huh. Love Actually. What? The Notebook. What? On Golden Pond. Chilling.
0: There, those are not horror movies, Julie. I've seen none of them. No, I take that back. I have seen Love Actually, Uh, and it was a horrifying experience. Yeah. Yeah. So that's your rationale that this will, this will frighten people into.
1: uh, Jean Fonda is just terrifying. (laughs) She is. She's an excellent actor. Great in Barbarella, but terrifying in On Golden Pond. That's all I'm saying.
0: Okay. Well, my recommendations um, would be uh, High Tension, 2003 uh, horror film from Alexandra Aja. And uh, this one is interesting. It has, it has a twist that doesn't quite hold up to repeat viewings but uh stylishly well done, and it plays with gender expectations in kind of a unique way and another film that came to mind, and this was based on the fact that uh in uh, Serena Whitney's uh, article for killer film, she mentioned that uh that it that at times like a horror movie can be almost like going to a funeral, so afterwards mm-hmm. you're so disturbed that you you kind of have to cling to other to to another person like you need real human you need contact comfort, yeah, yeah. You, you almost have to mourn for what has happened um which would probably indicate either a really good or a really bad movie watching experience. So, um, Oculus comes to mind, a 2013 film about a haunted mirror from, uh, Mike Flanagan. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everybody loved it. I thought it was really well crafted. I thought it did some wonderful stuff with, uh, with the way memory works and, uh, and taking uh, the past and the present and mixing them together. But it ultimately leaves you in such a, devastated place because you care about the characters and all of these uh these horror movie events happen and uh, and at the end you kind of need somebody to hold
1: indeed i do stand by the beast i gotta say the yeah. 70s french one um it's campy and if anybody goes out and they they see it on my recommendation i uh, apologize in advance for the beast penis that's all <laughs> i
0: have to say so warning may contain beast penis gotcha yeah gotcha. exactly all right. As always, you can find this and all the other podcast episodes on our homepage, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. And I'll try to include uh, links to related content on that landing page for this episode, as well as some outgoing links to some of these uh, resources that uh, Julie uh, made mention of. Uh, also on the website, you can find all of our videos, our blog posts, and links out to our various social media accounts.
1: All right. And if you have any thoughts brewing about this, if you think this is just some sort of hetero norm a relic of the past, or if you think there's a basis to it, let us know. You can do that by emailing us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.